Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, how, um, how your people can endure not just some loss, but seasons of repetitive loss, hardship, trials. It's all done. The bliss, oh, this glorious thought, not my sin in part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. You have for us, Father, most clearly, most assuredly, paid the full debt that we owed by the, son, by the work of the Son upon the cross. That, that truth, that knowledge, that abounds, that resides. And it shows itself and it reveals itself to be true, especially in times of hardship and loss, when we can truly say it is still well. I've lost everything around me. I've lost my children. I've lost more than those around me, it seems. But still, I can say it as well, because I have Christ. And having him, we have all that we need, more than we ever deserved. So, Lord, I pray today, you draw our eyes upon the one who so satisfies, the one who so fills and wells up within us contentment, peace and joy that abounds in all circumstances. The one that helps us persevere, the one that helps us endure these days of our pilgrimage as strangers and exiles as we long for the heavenly country that is still to come. Thank you, Lord, for, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your word that we can sing. Thank you for your word that we can preach. Thank you for your word that we can read, the word that we can speak to one another, the word that we can hear the word that we can taste. And so help us, Lord, today to receive the food of your word, the feast upon Christ today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Songs like that remind me that the Christian life is just not guaranteed to be easy and can oftentimes be difficult. You I was thinking about this over this past week in preparation for this sermon, that in years of doing pastoral ministry, you tend to think about over time, like, what are the things that are important in life? What are the things that are important in ministry? Um, you know, over the past three years, North Hills has gone through a lot. And we've, we've had 14 families. I, I went back and I looked at like an old membership roster from 2019, beginning of 2020. We've had 14 families move out of state alone. And that kind of stuff makes you think about the fact that with everybody, uh, you're living on borrowed time. You don't know how long you have with people that you see every single day. We've had brothers 
in the Lord pass away unexpectedly. And all that kind of stuff, for me, it makes me think about, as a pastor, just like as a, as a human being, as a Christian, it makes me think about really like what's important in life, what do you evaluate, what do you spend your time doing, what do you think about, how do you treat the people around you, right? You're living on borrowed time. You don't know how long you have. But pastorally in ministry, it makes me think about like what are the things that as a church we should really be doing and focusing upon. You know, people come and people go for all kinds of reasons, and as people have come and gone, I've thought to myself, and I've asked myself the question, what have they taken with them by their time being at North Hills? Pastorally, as a shepherd, what are people, what are they learning? What are they hearing? What are they taking with them? I mean, the Lord may has, have plans for some of you, and someday you'll be maybe living in a, in a different state or in a different area. And I begin to think about, like, what are the things that are really important? Churches can get involved in a lot of things. Some good, some not so good. But do any of these things, even some of the good things that the church can be involved in, they have the tendency and the temptation to become ultimate things. And good things that become ultimate things can become bad things if they end up replacing the ultimate good thing, which is God himself. And that's really what I want us to focus on today and the reason why I chose for us to focus on Romans 4, 17b. I know we were flying through chapter 4, ripping off like whole, you know, four or five verses at a time, and then we've kind of come to like one, two verses and then one verse and now half a verse. But again, I want us to just focus on what the text says for us as it draws our attention specifically to God himself and the importance of um, having a biblical vision of God. If I were to say that there was something that I would want people to take with them, that I would want for them to know, it would be the surpassing, majestic, satisfying vision of God that the Bible gives to us. Just like never grow tired of seeing God in the scripture, of embracing him as who he is and how he presents himself in his entirety to us in the word. Continue to cultivate a hunger for God. Always be hungry for the truths of his word, for, him, him, for himself because he is the greatest treasure and the greatest prize that you and I have in the gospel. The greatest thing that we have in the gospel is God himself. And that's what we want to talk about today. A.W. Tozer once famously said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. The question is, when you think about God, is it biblically accurate and informed? Or have you fashioned this idea and picture of who God is or who you want him to be based upon other things? What people have told you, what you've read in other books, life experiences? Or is it really informed by what God's word says about him? We want to look at that today and we want to be challenged by that. I was challenged by that. 
what I am committed to seeing is a biblical vision of God, not just known, but cherished and treasured above anything else. And I want people to have this themselves so that this is what they pass on to others. I want you to be thinking about, do I have a biblical vision of God? And how much of a desire do I have to impart this wisdom and treasure to others? So much so where you're convinced that, that um, if people spent, if they devoted their whole life to pursuing God, knowing him and loving him, that would be a life well spent. Like you're convinced of it yourself and you do it. Not perfectly, of course, none of us do. But you believe in that truth so much to the fact that you are, you are calling people and you are encouraging people, throw yourself into this vast ocean of who God is as he's presented in the word and find yourself lost in the wonder of his, his greatness and his magnitude. Romans chapter 4, verses, verse 17, I think reminds us of two things today that I'm encouraged by. The sermon titled today is, Our Gift is God. Our gift is God himself. And two things that we see in the scripture today, that God is present and God is powerful. God is present in your life. And he is powerful as well. So I'm going to read, let's read together Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. I'm going to read through 17, and then it's in the latter part of 17 that I want to draw our attention to this morning. Romans, beginning in chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of Saul. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And you think about what that passage is saying about God. Who was the God that Abraham had? The God that was able to give life from the dead. The God who was able to call things into existence that do not exist. And this is the God that Abraham lived in a relationship with. Now you read through the book of Genesis and you read Abraham's story. And you'll see the way that he lived. And we're going to see it coming up in, the, in this next week. Um, how Romans 4, 18 through 25 talks about the life of Abraham. Like, how did Abraham actually live knowing that he lived presently before God and that God was all-powerful working in his life? But if you read through that Genesis account, you'll see that he was not a perfect man. Abraham made many mistakes. And yet it's not the perfection of his life that's put on display and magnified here but it's the God who was good and perfect with him that imparted to him these gifts that is put on display. And this God is the same God that is present in your life. He's present in mine. He's powerful and he is at work. 
And these should be things that are really encouraging for us, challenging, but encouraging as well. God himself is the greatest gift that you have in the gospel. We want to look at some of these things. So first this morning, we look at the God who is present. We see in 17b, in the presence of God, of the God in whom he believed. The context is that in God's sight, in God's sight, according to God's perspective, in his view, Abraham is our father, which we've talked about over the past few weeks. He's he's the father of those who have faith. But we know that he is our father because he believed in God. Constantly throughout Romans 4, it is God who is put on display. You see in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, what does the scripture say? Romans 4, 3. Abraham believed God. Don't let that little phrase escape you. Abraham believed God. God himself was the focus of Abraham's faith. God himself was the focus of Abraham's life. You see, drop down in verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Yes, we see what he does. He justifies the ungodly. But it's him. It's God himself that is the focus of Abraham's relationship. And this was possible only because God had appeared to him. If you turn to Genesis chapter 12, again, I, I, I feel like if not every week, every other week, we're, we're going back to the book of Genesis because Abraham has been the one that God has used as an example for us. And I think he's such a really a clear and wonderful example of how salvation works. At the end of Genesis chapter 11, we see that Abraham is a pagan and he's living in a pagan land and he's worshiping pagan gods, pagan idols. But then God comes to him in Genesis 12, sovereignly, based upon his own desire, his own decision, God comes to Abraham. And we see in chapter uh, chapter 12 of Genesis, verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram. You see earlier in chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said, And we've seen different instances where the Lord speaks. The Lord spoke to Noah. The Lord spoke to Cain. The Lord spoke at various times and in many ways. But this word in chapter 12, verse 7 of Hebrews, appeared, is the first time that the word is mentioned since the fall. Where God appeared with Adam and Eve and they knew him pre-fall and they spoke together. In a unique way, God appears to Abram. He speaks to him, and then he appears to him. Now, whatever that appearance looked like, the scripture doesn't tell us specifically. But we know that by his appearing, Abraham was in the presence of God. And it's in the presence of God that he received these promises of what it was that God was going to do, and it propelled him forward of living a life of faith. The fact that this God had appeared to him. My proposition is that it is the special revealing of God that is necessary for salvation. God appears to Abraham 
and saves him. God appears to Paul, the, ones who, who, the one who is penning Romans, and saves him. And in a way, in a very special, unique, and saving way, God appeared to you when he saved you. I mean, the scripture speaks about God's presence in several ways. One way, the Puritan Stephen Charnock gave us kind of two ways in which God is present. He's present in what he would call an operational sense, and that God is just always present everywhere because he's always God. In one sense, God, because he's a creator of the universe, and because he is God, he is just, he's present everywhere. There's nowhere you can go to get away from his presence. Psalm 139 communicates that fact. Romans chapter 1 communicates that fact as well. Like, people know God exists, right? I mean, Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, namely his, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. God's everywhere. In one sense, he, 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 he inhabits the entire universe. Jeremiah 23, 24 would put it like this. God, this is God speaking. Can a man hide himself in secret places that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? There's, a, there's one sense in which God fills heaven and earth. He's everywhere. There's nowhere that you can go to get away from his presence, believer or non-believer. He fills the world. We're talking about if the, the theological term is his omnipresence. He's everywhere at all times, perfectly. But there is a special way that God is present with the believer. And when he is present in that way, he saves those whom he is present with. This is a gracious, covenantal, and relational presence in appearing. This is, what is, this is what happens when we preach the gospel. Believers, we, we preach the gospel and we share the gospel with other people because it is God's power under salvation for him to visit people and to appear to them, if you will, by the working of his Holy Spirit in their lives. This is what it is that we've been studying and we've learned from John chapter 3. Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus and he's saying, you cannot see, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God unless you are born again, unless the Spirit of God brings you new life. And, and the Spirit of God, it, he is God himself. It's not like the Holy Spirit is like the third member of the Trinity. He's kind of like we have the Father, we have the Son, and oh, the, the Holy Spirit, he's kind of over here doing his thing. Like, no, he is fully God. Majestic, pure, holy, and he comes and he visits. He appears, if you will, to his people when he saves them. And he does this, the vehicle that brings the Spirit of God present into people's lives so that they are saved is the gospel message. This is why Paul was committed to the gospel. He would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we, verse, chapter 1, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. 
But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He would go on further in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians to say this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul came with this this message that he was absolutely convinced that brought people into the presence of God in a saving way. And, it was, and it's the Spirit of God that does this. In some ways, God is present everywhere, but there is a very real and unique special way in which God is present with his people, with you, with me. Through every season of life, through all the highs, And through all the lows, how do you write a hymn that says it is well with my soul after you've just heard your four children's bodies are at the bottom of the ocean? How do you write that? How do you say that? It's well. It's well with my soul. If you do not have God himself in the gospel, God himself, yes, we've talked about Justification, it's, it's wonderful. The promises, they're, they're great. Faith is, a, is such a wonderful and tremendous gift. God's grace and the guarantee being poured onto our life like wouldn't trade it into the world. But none of those things compare. Those are the gifts. You get God himself. You get the giver of the gifts. All of these things that we rejoice in, that we love, forgiveness of sin, I, I'm telling you, I'm very thankful for forgiveness. I'm very thankful that God continues to be gracious and continues to wipe the slate clean and show unearned and unmerited forgiveness and goodness into my life. But as good as that is, as wonderful as that is, I have God himself. I have the one who does it. I have God himself. He's my treasure. He's the one that I adore. He's the one that I love. He's the one that as I thumb through the pages of Scripture and I come to know him more, I'm, I'm lost in in the immensity of his grandeur. Like, I can't wrap my mind around who he fully and completely is. God's personal presence is required in salvation, and those who are saved have his presence with them by the Spirit in a very unique and special way. And this is what it reminds me of. Yes, I can be in the woods and God is there. I can be out on, the, out on the beach and yes, God is there. God is everywhere. But because he is present with his people by his spirit in a very unique and special way, that makes things like this important. Church. Where the, God, where the spirit of God who indwells me And the Spirit of God that indwells you brings all the Spirit-indwelled people together to hear the spiritually empowered revelation of God. To sing words that are full of truth. 
to hear a sermon that I, I pray is, is full of truth. To have conversations with one another that are a ministry of the truth of God's word. To be able to taste the word of God at communion. That makes this time unique and special. And to me, it makes church like, why would you, why, I mean, why would you ever not want to be among the Lord's people? God is our greatest gift that we have in the gospel. As wonderful as all of those gifts are, it is God himself that is the greatest gift. The Lord's people gathered together on the Lord's day that he has appointed for us to gather together is the means of grace which God gives to us to grow into the image of Christ. You realize that God, he, he kind of knows stuff. He knows a few things about a few things. And he's kind of said that these are the things that I use to, to prepare you for eternity and glory. And to be conformed into the image of Christ. And gathering together on the Lord's day with his Lord's people is one of those means of grace that he provides for us to grow into the image of Christ. To not forsake this gathering together. That the Lord is, I'm convinced that the, the Lord is uniquely and in a special way present at church when his saints, when his children are gathered together in a way that he is not present anywhere else. And that's why this is, this is the priority for us as we gather together to, to worship. Not only is God present in the life of the believer, but God is the God who is powerful is at work as well. Not just powerful, but this is what we would call omnipotent, all-powerful. That there is, there is nothing outside of God that is more powerful than him. You see that this is the God who is at work in Abraham, and this is the God that is at work in you and in me as well. Again, now contextually, God is described this way in reference to what he has done in salvation. The question is, how is God able to give life to the dead and call something into existence that does not exist through Abraham? Because that's the context of what he's talking about here. The context of Romans chapter 4 is what it is, is the fatherhood of Abraham. And Abraham, living in God's presence, came to know that God that he lived in the presence of is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that not, do not exist. How is God going to do that, and why is he described that way concerning Abraham? And it's because God is as we have looked at already, there are spiritual things that God is able to do and that he is at work doing that would not be done otherwise. That God is spiritually at work building a people for himself. He is calling a people, he is creating a people that do not yet exist into existence. He is giving people life from the dead. This is who 
Abraham was. He was dead in his sin as his trespasses, right? But God comes to him, appears to him, and gives him life. This is what happens in the life of every single sinner when they're converted. God visits you. And he, by personally, by his own hand, draws you out of the deadness of your sin and trespasses, breathes life into you, and adopts you into his family. And he begins, and he calls things into existence that do not exist. God is able to spiritually give life from the dead, spiritually make something exist that does not yet exist, and God would prove it by performing physical wonders and miracles as well. And this is what it is that we see in Luke chapter 5. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 5. It's a well-known story. Luke chapter 5 is the story of Jesus healing the paralytic. Beginning in Luke chapter 5, verse 17. It says this, On one of those days, as he, Jesus, was teaching... Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Verse 20, and when he saw their faith, this is a story of justification by faith. When he saw their faith, he said to the man, man, your sins are forgiven. Jesus performs a spiritual work right there. He imparts life. This man is dead in his sins and his trespasses. But as he's lower down, Jesus imparts to him life, forgiveness of sin. He does a spiritual inner work. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise up, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorify God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Jesus performs an invisible yet very real spiritual work in this man's life. And to validate that truth, he performs a physical wonder to let people know that he has the power to not only forgive sin, but to make this paralyzed man walk again. He, God is doing the same thing with Abraham. There is going to be a spiritual people. This is what we've been learning about in Romans, that there is a spiritual people who are the descendants of Abraham that God is bringing from every tribe and tongue and language, and he's going to do it through this gospel message. This is a, though it's unseen, oh, it is real. It is a very real 
and powerful work where God is giving life to the dead. He's calling to existence something that does not exist. And to prove this fact, he's going to bless Abraham and there's going to come an entire physical nation from him who God would work in unique and specific ways in preserving and giving them his law. God is the one who is able to create something out of nothing. That's one of the things that makes the Genesis 1 account of creation so incredible. All mankind can do is manipulate what already exists. God speaks and something comes out of nothing. This is This is the power that God has. And this is the kind of power that is at work in Abraham's life and is at work in Paul's life and is at work in your life and in my life as well. And not only do you have, the the point is, is not only do you have the power of God working in your life, you have the God who is all-powerful working in your life. You have him He's present and he's powerful and he is at work accomplishing things in your life, many of which go unseen to the natural eye, but of which God knows and times you know and other people might know as well. God's capable of creating a universe out of nothing. He's capable of taking a 99-year-old man whose wife is barren and bringing forth an entire nation from them. You think about what it is that God is capable of doing in your life and in mine. Ephesians, Paul would emphasize both of these facts in Ephesians chapter 2. He would say in chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He continues to go on from there. But then verse four, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Each each Christian in this room should be absolutely convinced in their mind, that God can give life from the dead because he's done it to you. Each one of us in this room that know Christ should be convinced that God can create something out of nothing. He can call into existence things that do not exist because he has done it in you. And he continues to work and do it in the lives of his people creating, as he would go on in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, talking about creating one man out of these two men. No longer are there Gentiles and Jews, but there's one man in Christ. God has created something and brought it into existence that did not formally exist in a very practical sense. There was a very, very clear delineation between Israel and the rest of the nations of the world. But what Paul sees in the gospel is that now these two men are now brought into one man. God has truly created something that did not previously exist in a sense. 
And it's those who are of the household of faith, the church, finally brought together under the gospel message, united into one man, no distinction. God is bringing life from the dead and calling into existence things that do not exist. And I think about this then in a, a few very, I hope, practical and helpful ways. I read this quote earlier this week, and I think it's helpful in thinking through these things personally. Herman Bobbing said this, Scripture teaches that God is a conscious, willing, and omnipotent being who called the whole world with all of its energies and laws into existence and who in doing so by no means expended the fullness of his powers. He retains and possesses within himself an infinite plenitude of life and strength. Nothing is too wonderful or hard for him, and with him all things are possible. Now you think about that for your life personally. Life-dominating sins broken by the power of God who is present with you in your life. The believer should never say, I can't change. This is just who I am. I'm going to be this way the rest of my days. That is biblically not true. You see the, the transformation. Abraham's life was going this direction, dead in his sins. God appears to him, saves him, and sets him off on a completely new trajectory of which he begins to grow and become more like Christ and grow to love the God who is present and powerful working in his life. God is with him like every step of the way, and he's with you and I every step of the way preparing us to bring us home. There's no situation in which you can encounter and say, I cannot do what God wants me to do. If you are in a situation and you know what God wants you to do, it is not a matter of God being able to help you do it. It is a matter of you walking by faith and trusting in him. And this is the wonderful thing. Not only is his power at work in your life to help you do it, but he's present, helping you. That's like why he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Behold, I am with you till the end of the age. Like, I don't want to know that God, his power is working in my life from afar. I love knowing that he is present in my life where I am, and his power is at work in me to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in, in people like me. And in people like you, life-dominating sins are broken. Like, broken pasts can be worked through. Darkened and cloudy futures, those can be worked through. And trusting God, knowing that he is present and he is at work. Nothing is too difficult for him. It's a matter of trust and obedience. The second thing I thought of was, if God is the greatest gift that we have, how well do you know him? How often do you set him before you? How often are you coming to the word and you're getting a biblical vision of God placed before you 
hopefully, prayerfully every day. If God is present with his people and his powers at work in your life, don't you want to know stuff about him? I mean, as you read through the word, there are, there are deep and complicated hard truths that I, about God that I cannot wrap my mind around. But you know what that does? It draws me into his wonder. I can't understand it, but, it, but I want to know more of it. His, his, his eternality. I mean, some of these things that the scripture presents to us about God draws should be drawing us in to him the question is is how well do you know him and is the god of your mind truly the god of scripture which leads me to my third thing there are three there are things in scripture that you are going to find out about god that are difficult to swallow that are bitter truths about who god is as he begins to reveal more of himself in the word And unless God himself is your greatest treasure, we're really going to struggle to not, not only to accept, but to embrace and to love all of who God is. God does things in your life that you, would, you don't want him to do. God is, is, is committed in your life to making, making you like Christ, and he will accomplish that in ways you would prefer for him not to accomplish them. You're going to come in contact with other Christians who have this idea of who God is, people who are genuinely Christians and born again, and you're going to have conversations with them regarding some of the bitter and hard truths of God's word, and they're going to struggle to understand them. And you need, you're going to need help to be able to persevere and continue to minister to that person and walk through life with them as they wrestle with the hard and the deep, difficult truths of who God is in Scripture. What that's going to create in you is a tremendous amount of patience and grace and understanding. That there were things that you read about God in the Word that were bitter and hard for you to embrace. But God so graciously and wonderfully brought you to a place of yielding and submitting to the truth of who He is. He, I'm telling you, He's not changing. The change is in us and whether or not we embrace and accept God for who He is. And as you come under that, you will be put in the perfect position to minister to other people that wrestle with the difficult truths of who God is in his word. But I will tell you this, and lastly, there is no greater joy, there is no truer satisfaction found than in God being God. True joy, true satisfaction, true peace, True contentment is when you yield yourself to God and him being God and knowing him more and more. Psalm 63, 5 and 6 say this. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips you see that? Sat personal satisfaction and personal praise and worship. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you 
in the watches of the night? What brought satisfaction? What brought peace? What brought contentment to the psalmist? Meditating upon God, remembering God, the God that was with him, present in his life, and the God that was powerful working in his life as well. My prayer is that that would be the same for us, which means you really need to take time and set it aside to meditate upon the richness of who God is. Yes, God is your greatest treasure in the gospel. Now pursue him and know him and meditate upon him more so that you can be satisfied in him more and more. As we prepare to take communion, I think this is a wonderful time for us to transition into our communion time. We think about who God is as he's presented in the word and the clearest manifestation, the clearest picture that we have of God is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh. And we see what it is that he has done and what his ministry was marked by and where it led him to the cross. So if you are here today and you're visiting and you know Christ as your Savior by faith and by faith alone, then you are invited to partake of the table. But if you don't know him by faith and you're standing upon some other merit of your own that you think will bring you into a right relationship with God, then we would ask for you to refrain and not to partake of the elements. But for those of us who are partaking, that bread, it reminds us of his body. And the juice, it reminds us of his blood. And we're reminded that we have, we have God himself because God brought us to him. The son's work, and the sufficient work upon the cross is how we are brought to God and how we get God and to grow and enjoy him and be satisfied in him. So the elements are on the tables behind you. You can get those, return back to your seat, have some time of prayer, meditation, and then we'll partake of the communion time together shortly.